Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mario Poiker, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Sustainable Industries and Livable Cities at Victoria University in Australia. He's here with us today to give us an overview of the radical right in Australia. Mario, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start with Mario really drawing on your experience as a researcher working in Australia. For most of our researchers and fellows and people based in the United States and Europe, they're not as familiar with the far right in Australia. So what spurred the recent growth of the radical right in Australia? Okay, maybe um, to begin with a a very brief um, context. Uh, I'm not a historian, but I I looked at um, the the history of the radical right in Australia. And it has been a very long history, um, since the 1920s at least. And then there were groups that emerged um, immediately after World War II, and it continued that. So they popped up and disappeared again. Um, but uh, in contrast to what we've seen in, in other parts of the, the Western world, um, those groups have never really uh, received a lot of traction or attention. There were a few exceptions in the in the late 1980s and uh, 1990s when we saw some violent escalation, um, firebombings on uh, Asian restaurants, for example, in, in parts of Australia. But it has always remained um, under the radar, not much public attention, not much political attention, and certainly also not much um, academic attention. But that has changed significantly in the mid or early 2010s. Um, the global context was uh, sort of ISIS was dominating the, the public headlines. So it was all about um, Islam as a threat, the moral panic around Islam, domestic, the threat of domestic um, attacks, uh, which we've seen in Europe, but then also to some extent smaller extent in, in Australia itself. Um, so there was a, a sense of fear and panic around the place of Islam in Western societies, obviously embedded in this broader war and terror that we've seen after 9-11. This was um, a catalyst and very fertile ground for the emergence of um, the new radical right. Um, it, there was a, 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 an incident in 2014 in Sydney, where that um, was considered a, a, an act of domestic um, Islamic jihadist terrorism, um, with a few people killed. I think four people were killed. Um, the Lind Cafe siege, it was um, commonly referred to, that was a big catalyst, a specific catalyst for um, groups to emerge. So the, the, the trigger was an anti Islam climate. Um, then there were a few regional um, incidents, uh, a mosque application in a small regional town in Victoria, uh, which is a state in the, in the southeast of, of Australia, um, also became some kind of um, rallying ground for new emerging far-right groups. So initially it was all about um, pushing an anti-Islam agenda, although this was for many groups just the smokescreen and uh, an opportunity to push their much broader agenda. And I think your last point about 
the use of anti-Islamic rhetoric is very important, particularly, as you said, in the Australian context. But let's get a little bit into the, the broader agenda of these groups. What kinds of narratives and issues have the radical right used in the past in Australia? And as you pointed out, there's been this surge in activity in the 2010s. Have there been any changes in the kinds of issues and arguments and narratives that they've been pushing? There have been lots of, of changes uh, in, in the last um, five to, what is it now, five, six, seven years. So initially, it, it was all about um, being anti-Islam, anti-mosques, anti-Muslim um, communities. But it's very soon um, turned out that this was for many groups just a uh, an, an opportunity to push an agenda, and even in the in the mid two thousand tens, there were some um, groups that were already in existence a little bit longer that were not comfortable with, with this focus on anti Islam. They they said we are not only uh, um, against Islam in in Australia. We are much our agenda is much broader. It's, it's uh, white supremacy. It's ethno national state. So we don't agree with what they say multiculturalism minus Islam. Uh, so initially there was a, a debate about this, but then as the, this moral panic and the public um, hysteria around Islam slowly declined, I mean, it obviously has never really left us, unfortunately, but um, it declined. And then those groups that had emerged in the 2010s, they were looking for, either looking for new opportunities to mobilize or showed their true face, basically. Um, they've always been very responsive to um, what we call the like, discursive opportunities that popped up. So in, in 2017, for example, there was a marriage equality debate in Australia. So they jumped in that bandwagon and pushed a very anti, uh, like a, an agenda that um, opposed gender uh, diversity or gender identity uh, debates. Um, so that was one of the issues. Same-sex, the same-sex marriage debate was becoming quite big, and then um, there were issues around supposedly African gang crimes that became a big topic, also triggered by certain incidents that happened in in Melbourne in 2016, 17, and, and then 18 again. So it, it's important for us to um, to emphasize that they have been very opportunistic in terms of what topics and what narratives they want to push and changes very quickly. But generally speaking, there's been a shift away from a narrow anti-Islam agenda to a much more openly racist, um, white supremacy and anti-Semitic um, um, agenda or narratives. These have become, these agendas have become much more prevalent. Um, that, that happened before then. 2019 Christchurch uh, terror attack, and it was and it atten- intensified after that. Um, so there's a shift of, away from anti-Islam, and another big topic has been being anti-government. This is something that comes up, especially at the moment again in the in the context of um, COVID-19 restrictions. So the government is becoming the enemy. Generally speaking, the narratives have moved away from targeting individual groups to um, targeting the bigger systems like the, the new world order, the globalist elite. So it's it's moving into a much broader ideological um, agenda that we've seen most recently, also with the rise of 
um, sovereign citizens that is really something that is happening at, at the moment. I think that last point, Mario, is incredibly important. And I, I think what you just said really captured how flexible these groups are. I think at times uh, as scholars and even as just viewers of television, we think that these groups haven't changed at all. And in reality, they're quite flexible and quite able to adapt and pull in other issues to push a broader, more and more racist, more explicitly racist, more explicitly nationalist agenda. You mentioned one point about their relationship to the Australian government that I thought was really interesting. Coming from a United States context, one of the most challenging things for scholars working on this issue is how much Donald Trump specifically and other members of the Republican Party have really started using and pulling from white nationalists and white supremacist groups rhetoric and material. So I wanted to ask if you could go a little bit further into the relationship between what we would call the radical right and the mainstream right in Australia. Yeah, it's, a, it's very complicated. Obviously, the context is, is different in Australia. We also have, uh, in that sense, it's not so different. We also have a conservative government and we've had one for quite some time. Um, but there is not much support for that government. So it, it's the, the general um, ideological mindset that is anti um, or very anti-democracy actually in, in many uh, parts of the, the radical right makes it almost impossible for, for most groups to be pro-government. That doesn't mean that's, that they are opposed to every government decision and every uh, policy. So I remember in 2016 or 17 there was a, a rally organized by um, radical right groups in Melbourne that was actually in support of the government um, refugee policy. Uh, so this is something that we don't see very often, in, at least not in, in Europe and in, in, um, in Australia, that a, a radical right group mobilizes in favor um, or in support of government policies. But generally speaking, the government is, is seen as the part of the, the enemy. And this is... Um, specifically the case in those states. So it's a state-specific issue often that are not conservative. And then those governments are then seen as you know, Marxist, socialists, communists, although they're just normal social democrats, basically. Thanks for that. And, um, you know, the context that you pointed out of the various state governments, how that impacts the radical rights, organizing and the kinds of issues that they focus on. So for those of us who are not as familiar with Australia's government systems, you know, how they set up their local versus federal governments, are there any geographical hotspots where the radical right is particularly vocal in Australia? So Australia is, a, is as you, as you um, mentioned, uh, um, a federal state, so similar to the U.S., um, States have a lot of have their own character and one of the and their own reputation in a in a way. So the most progressive um, state at the moment is Victoria. This is where, where Melbourne is. Um, and although we don't have really reliable data on that would allow like a, a really robust um, answer to the question of geographical hotspots, so it's hard to say. But Melbourne and Victoria in general has been described as the capital of the radical right. Um, there was a newspaper uh, a few um, 
think it was in early 2019, after a big rally in Melbourne. Um, and the big question was, why does it always happen in, in Melbourne? And it's true that those um, protests predominantly happened have, have happened in, in Melbourne and in Victoria um, more generally, but mostly in Melbourne. Um, but just because those publicly visible actions um, occur primarily in Melbourne doesn't mean that Melbourne is necessarily a hotspot. So I'm not saying it's not, um, but from different related surveys, we know that when you look at attitude surveys, for example, they show that other parts of the country is are way more, racist attitudes are way more prevalent in other parts of the country, in Queensland, which is in the Northeast, also in, North, in New South Wales, which is where Sydney sits, um, most other states are more conservative in terms of um, mainstream views uh, and main, mainstream racist views or racist views in, in the mainstream. So it's it's difficult to say whether they are, depending on how you define hotspots, I guess the activity level is particularly high in Melbourne and in Victoria. And our assessment is that this is not despite its progressive nature of the state, but because of the progressive nature. So they, they, the enemy is even more clearly defined in a state that is progressive. Um, it reminds me a bit of Portland as well, where the, you know, that you see... Uh, I was just going to say, when you were saying that, it completely reminded me of Portland in the Pacific Northwest in the United States. Yeah. I guess the difference to Portland, I mean, obviously there are many differences, but one of the differences is that Portland, as far as I know, and I'm not an expert in U.S. Um, geography and demographics, but it's a relatively um, white state, whereas um, Detroit is a very multicultural state. I mean, like one of the most multi, I think the most multicultural state. Maybe yeah, yeah. Portland, like is, Portland is extremely white. Yeah. Well, and I think this gets to your, your point that you made about in, in the case of Melbourne, it's the cosmopolitan and diversity of the city that breeds that uh, reactionary racist response versus in Portland, there's a long history of um, since the 20s and 30s groups seeing the Pacific Northwest as a haven for, for white people to form their own separate state. So, you know, there's all of these complexities and these different groups that are all part of this umbrella of what we would call the radical right, but each has different motivations and uh, drivers and arguments that it's very important to think about the local context, not just the people that you see on TV. Um, so I guess that leads me to my next question for you, Mario, which for those of us who are not in Australia, who would you say are the major players that you see operating in your radical right landscape? So the, the first thing that is important to note is that it's not very well organized. Um, so there are not many um, clearly defined and um, publicly visible or even non-publicly or in, in uh, otherwise visible groups that used to be different in the mid-2010s when, when the new radical right uh, sort of emerged and we had the anti-Islam group called Reclaim Australia, which was very dominant and had a very big number uh, of followers online and they mobilized quite a few people at rallies. Then a splinter group called United Patriots Front um, another splinter group, True Blue Crew, Soldiers of Odin, which followed those Odinism sort of style. Um, these groups have all either be completely disappeared or have become very sort of 
um, dormant in, in a way. Um, it's probably worth mentioning that the United Patriot Front was has been or was a key player and was led by Blair Cottrell, who was um, referred to as the emperor by the Christchurch terror um, attacker, the um, um, Tarrant. But these groups, as I said, they have all sort of um, become defunct and gone. Then we have, apart from those, you know, those groups that now have disappeared, we have um, a few political parties on the fringe. Um, one of them, which I would describe rather as right-wing populist party, one, the Pauline Hansen's One Nation Party, she has a few seats in parliament. Um, then there are many other very sort of fringe political parties that have never had any chance to be, um, you know, play any role in the in elections, any significant role. So apart from those parties, we have a, a few groups and mainly sort of networks between groups. So groups I could, for example, mention the, the Proud Boys, a uh, spin-off of the American version of the Proud Boys. Um, but most actors, on the, the, the key players are not organized. It's a leaderless um, movement primarily based on networks. Um, so I think that the groups or the, the individuals who want to push the radical right agenda, they have realized that groups, formal groups don't really work in Australia. So they have most recently um, moved to develop um, more informal networks, um, which includes uh, you know, individuals that just personally associate themselves, but also previous groups, um, like, for example, the, the Lead Society, which is a men's club, a bit more political and a bit more radical than the Proud Boys, because the Lead Society, they push a, an openly nationalistic um, approach uh, in the agenda. They have recently merged with more openly fascist groups, um, neo-Nazi or Nazi groups that call themselves the, the National Socialist um, Network. Then we have the Australian Council of Nationalists. So these are the, the main groups. And then on the fringes, we have groups like um, Southern Cross Hammerskins and Combat 18, who don't, like skinhead groups that don't really play a, a significant role in that and don't, don't do much. Um, so they are sort of falling apart. But the, the main point, I think, is that it's based on networks um, and personally, like people who are personally associating themselves with those networks. Yeah, and I that point about the personal informal networks that exist in the radical right is extremely important, especially as, as someone who studies this. And as I'm sure you've run into, it can be very difficult to track membership in these groups because the groups are constantly evolving. They're constantly reforming. You'll have people that are members of three or four different extremist organizations. So, and they do this to make themselves seem bigger, more substantial, more powerful than they actually are, which can make it really difficult to, you know, track and accurately measure where these groups are organizing, how they're doing it, who the members are. Um, and I think that that's an absolutely critical context for us when we're thinking about the radical right. You've mentioned a few times the Christchurch terror attacks. Um, so I wanted to ask you specifically if you could briefly, for people who are not familiar, explain the Christchurch terror attacks in 2019, which were committed by an Australian right-wing extremist, and then talk to us a little bit about how this has affected the radical right in Australia. 
Okay, so the, the Christchurch terror takes, and I think we can refer to it as um, right extreme right wing or radical right right terror attack because the perpetrator himself admitted that it was meant to be a terror attack. So until recently, I always had to say an alleged terror attack, which almost felt right, awkward right, because yeah. it was so obvious. But now he admitted to it, yeah. so he hasn't been convicted. Um, was perpetrated by a man named um, Tarrant, who grew up in a regional town in New South Wales, which is the state where Sydney is the capital of. Um, he left Australia a few years back and traveled through Europe. Um, and that's where he, um, well, I don't want to go into the details how he radicalized, but I mean, he that's, he talks about that a lot in, in a man manifesto that is called The Great Replacement that he published um, at the time of his his um, terror act, basically, in um, last year in, in 2019, early 2019. Um, he, he killed 51 people, um, all of them Muslims, in an attack on two mosques in Christchurch, um, New Zealand. So there was a bit of a debate, is, is this um, how this affects Australian response and awareness of right-wing terror. Some people didn't want to see him as Australian because he hasn't he hadn't lived in Australia for a few years and it happened in New Zealand. Um, but he he was um, Australian and that's why it, um, probably the reason why it has affected the discussion, um, the political and public debate in, in Australia as well. Um, but it obviously also affected the way um, the radical right in Australia saw themselves and how it developed. And it has often been described as an, an absolute game changer for the radical right or for the debate around them. But I would not say that it was a game changer. It was not a complete change of directions when it happened in 2019. We would rather say that it, it reinforced, the attacks reinforced developments that we had already seen prior to, to the attacks. So there, we, we finished the study in just before the attacks happened. So we submitted the report in, in, um, in late 2018, just a few months before the attacks. And what we said in that report is that we've seen a um, development of contraction within the far right. So there's often that debate that it's growing. Well, I'm not even sure whether it's growing in terms of numbers. Um, the radical right movement um, was seen in Australia. I'm not sure whether it's growing. Maybe it's growing again now, probably. But back then, we saw that it was rather contracting into more radical and smaller cells. Um, so a bit related to what I said before, the, the falling apart of that, you know, of those more organized groups. Um, initially, the radical right tried to become a mass movement. And there were moments when you thought they could actually um, sort of gather a bit of momentum and... and um, turn into a mass movement. But then the, the numbers at the protests declined and declined and declined, and the numbers of the counter-protests increased and increased. So it was hard to maintain that, that, that narrative that they are sort of the silent majority. So they changed directions and strategy, and I'm not sure how strategic that was and how deliberate it was, but it was certainly something that played out in, in the real world. Um, they moved away from mass mobilization attempts and and contracted in smaller groups where they all knew each other. People knew each other. Um, recruitment happened on a personal level, not via Facebook anymore. Um, 
so that was a development that we saw prior to the Christchurch attacks. And the Christchurch attacks reinforced that development in our views. And there were various reasons. One reason was that people who were sort of on the fringes of those um, groups and, and ideologies, they were forced to confront the decision whether they want to be part of something that could lead or could be associated with the killing of 51 people. So many people just decided that this is all going too, too far and probably um, jumped off this, this movement. But those who stayed were more committed. That was, that's our, our sense. So when I said before that there is a shift towards openly racist and white supremacist narratives, that's probably also because those who were more on the fringes of those groups left the movement or have become less um, involved. The second reason why it contracted was of um, the social media crackdown on many, um, you know, radical right websites uh, or um, pages on, on Facebook and Twitter on those mainstream um, social media platforms. So those people who decided to remain active online, they moved to more fringe old tech platforms. Um, we have, for example, seen an increase in the number of um, members on Gab in the subgroup Australia, um, from about 3,000 when the Christchurch attack happened to around 11,000 in just a few months. So it, it skyrocketed and um, shows that there, obviously not all of them are Australians, but there is a, a cert certainly an increase in Australian radical right um, associated individuals who went to those more radical websites and onto those websites that are more of an echo chamber even than their previous Facebook pages. So that also changed the, the way narratives and ideologies are reinforced and aggravated within those groups and leads to a, a further radicalization process amongst them. So I think this, and, and then also, I mean, HN has been taken down and although it has migrated to um, sort of the dark net, um, it has also probably fueled a, a more radical or more extremist part of, of the radical right within the Australian debate. And they have always been well connected internationally. So those HN, um, the closure of HN could have had um, an, an effect on them mm. as well. And I think the point that you just made there highlights one of the great dilemmas of how do you combat extreme right wing activity online? By deplatforming them, in many cases, like you said, perhaps the less committed members drop off, but the more extreme members just reinforce and form a smaller, more tight-knit group and migrate to a difficult area that, of the internet that's even more challenging to regulate. So I think yeah. that tension... Yeah, the question. Yeah, 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 that's the big so. question that we, I think, as scholars and policymakers really face is, how do you actually curb extreme right-wing activity on the internet? Yeah, and the, the question is what, what the objective is. If you want to um, avoid this, um, you know, mess, mess contribution of, of ideologies into the broader mainstream, then deplatforming is certainly a very important element of that. And um, one of the, the, the main um, groups that were active in 2015-16, the United Patriots Front, they blamed the, the crackdown on their Facebook page for for their crumbling basically, so it's a good sign when when people like people at the center of the of the radical right say these things. But then at the same time, if your if your objective is to avoid violent um, ex 
violent escalation, then those deplatforming attempts may be counterproductive in, in a sense because you drive people underground and you know the the, the risk is as is in other places of the world always that there are individuals who um, just take it one step further basically and, and commit an act of violence. So the question of deplatforming revolves around what the objective is really. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And it also for for many of these groups, they've now become transnational, right? They take inspiration from all these different places and there's different regulations in all of these different places. And there's so many ways to circumvent regulation now that, like you said, it's, it's getting in a larger existential question of what do you actually think that you can reasonably do to curb the, the violence of, of these groups? So Mario, thank you for being here with us today. And uh, where can people read more about what you've been writing are you on are you on social media can they find you on twitter where can our listeners read more of your work um you can you can find um more about my publications and my work on the car website and on ResearchGate and um, academia mario thank you again for for being with us today thank you very much uh, thank you for joining us for another episode of right rising a podcast from the center for the analysis of the radical right see you next time